Welcome to the Slice of Medieval podcast. In this edition, I'm delighted to be chatting to Sharon about her new book, which is about Nicola de la Haye, and it's called King John's Right Hand Lady. In the book, Sharon, you trace the origins of Nicola and you describe the part she played in English history. Perhaps for those listeners who have no idea at all who Nicola de la Haye was, can you give a brief idea of her her origins and status. Certainly, Nicola de la Haye was the hereditary castellan of Lincoln Castle. Basically, her dad and her granddad had both been constables of Lincoln Castle and she inherited it from them. She was married twice and each husband had the job of constable of Lincoln Castle because it was Nicola's, so the hubby gets it, Nicola doesn't. Except when second hubby dies, suddenly Nicola's in charge. And at a time when England was in dire straits, King John was on the throne, Magna Carta had been issued and revoked. The French had invaded again under Prince Louis. Half of England was in the hands of the French and their allies, the rebel barons, half in under John's command. And then, of course, John dies in October 1216. Just hours before he died, he named Nicola as Sheriff of Lincolnshire, the first ever female sheriff in England in her own right. After John died, she was still in charge of Lincoln Castle. At the time when the French decided to besiege Lincoln Castle, William Marshall was now regent and had this plan to see the French off once and for all. And the idea was for one battle that would end everything. William Marshall saw Nicola needed rescuing because she was getting low on supplies. The city of Lincoln held for the rebels, so she was sort of an island in the middle of this rebel and French army. And she held out long enough for the Battle of Lincoln to be held on the 20th of May, 1217, thus saving England from the French. The French signed a peace treaty and went home. The rebel barons decided it was about time they made peace with what was then a nine-year-old king, and England was saved, all because Nicola held on to Lincoln Castle. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) (laughs) So it'd be fair to say she lived in interesting times. She did, and she was a very strong and a very independent woman. I don't think she sat doing the sewing while everybody else took charge of her castle. She was very much involved in events of the time. Yeah, and I think um, I think her her independence comes across in the book in the book very uh, very well. Now, it wasn't just the later events around the Battle of Lincoln that uh, Nicola was involved in. I mean, earlier on, when she was rather younger, the De La Haye family was much affected by the anarchy in, in King, King Stephen's reign. What were the problems with, with the De La Haye family in respect of the anarchy? There is not much mention of the De La Hayes during the period of the anarchy. But from the records, which say that Richard de la Haye, Nicola's father, inherited Lincoln Castle from his father, suggests that at some point his father, Robert de la Haye, was constable of Lincoln Castle. So when the anarchy started, it looks like Robert was kicked out of Lincoln Castle by King Stephen, who put his own people in charge. So from these very sparse records, unfortunately, there is not a lot of information out there about Robert and the anarchy. But it appears from later records that he was a strong supporter of Empress Matilda. Because when Henry II came to the throne, one of the first things he did um, in the early years of his reign was restore Richard, Robert's son, to Lincoln Castle as his father had held it. So he was rewarding his supporters, which confirms that the de la Hayes were on Empress Matilda's side. The fact they were kicked out of the castle suggests that they weren't on Stephen's side. And there's another little link, which is that Richard de la Hayes' wife was 
a cousin of William de Roumer's wife. William de Roumer was the Earl of Lincoln and the brother of the Earl of Chester. And they were the ones who cunningly took control of Lincoln Castle from the constable that Stephen had installed. They basically visited the wife of the constable. Well, their wives visited the wife of the constable to have afternoon tea. And then the husbands came to collect the wives. And apparently the constable and his men were out hunting at the time. Um, There was only a small force inside the castle. So William de Roumer and his brother, Ranulf, came to collect their wives with a couple of their own men, overpowered the very small garrison that was left inside and took control of the castle. Afternoon tea can be very dangerous. It can, can't it? So that's how the de la Hayes didn't have the castle, but it looks like... They were of the affinity of William de Roumer yeah. as Earl of Lincoln and of um, Empress Matilda. So I liked them more when I found that <laughs> out because um, I'm definitely an Empress Matilda fan. But it just shows how the the sort of national events impact on all these various baronial families and gentry families throughout England, depending on who they who they support. Mm. Their family fortunes will be made or broken. I mean, there's there's further examples of that, obviously, a bit later on with the de la Haye family. So one of the things you mentioned uh, in your introduction was that Nicola inherited the office of constable of Lincoln Castle from her father. I mean, there are lots of castles in England. Why was Lincoln Castle so important in the Middle Ages? When you look at Lincoln now, most people bypass it. You know, they if anyone from America comes over to visit, they make for London and they make for York. Very few people, in comparison, make for Lincoln. And yet it's a Roman city. It's a medieval city. And it's central. It is so central in England. It's unreal, you know. And there are Roman roads that lead to Lincoln. If you control Lincoln, you can control the path north. So anyone going up to Scotland to invade Scotland had to go past Lincoln. Or they did in those days. Now, the A1's a bit further to the west and the M1's even further west. And you just don't even see it. But at the time, it was a very strategic castle. And I think you can understand that by just looking at the size of it. Mm. Its walls are about three quarters of a mile to walk around. You know, the walls are massive. It's still got a courthouse in there. It was a Victorian prison. But it wasn't just a royal castle. When you actually look at who owned Lincoln Castle, it wasn't one person. There were several Mm. people had interests in the castle. The Earls of Lincoln had an interest in it. The Bishop of Lincoln had an interest in it. (laughs) And then the King. So it it was a joint operation who commanded the castle which is possibly why it's actually got two two keeps rather than just the one because there's the king's interest and the and the earl's interest there's quite a bit of it intact then still isn't there the walls are intact and unlike a lot of castles the keeps the lucy tower which is the main keep is actually in the walls so the walls aren't built around the keeps the keeps are in the walls yeah and it's got two mobs so one's the lucy tower and the other is the observatory tower some royal castles wallingford springs to mind because i went to the site of wallingford castle in berkshire which was a a massive royal castle huge and very strategically important and there's just nothing there at all just a hill basically Mm -hmm. with a few odd stones on it and there's nothing to tell the visitor, aside from the odd information board here and there. There's nothing to, to give them any idea of the scale of what was there. So at least at Lincoln, mm. you've got some walls. You've got the walls. I mean, it's still a working castle, you could say, because it's actually got the county court within the, in the bailey. Yeah. It's got the old Victorian prison. But before that, there would have been a number of halls in there. And they've done um, some recent excavations. They found a Saxon chapel and the body of a Saxon princess, I think it was. They've got, you know, they found where they found the midden heap, basically. (laughs) Oh, that's always good to know (laughs) where that is. (laughs) Well, that shows them exactly who was in there because of the... um, the type of food and yeah. the ivory dice and the combs and things. Rich people lived in this castle. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, as we'll see a bit later on, the castle was involved in, in a couple of very, very significant moments from a national point of view. Yes. I mean, even today, it still houses one of the four original copies of Magna Carta. Yeah, yeah. 
Apparently the cathedral own it, but the castle look after it and they've built a beautiful um, purpose-built vault to keep it safe. Well, obviously the anarchy was a time of unrest, but there was also a time during the reign of Richard I when mm. there was a great deal of uncertainty. Richard was in the Crusades, he was then he was imprisoned at one point, and his more or less, not exactly sole surviving relative, but but his younger brother, his sole surviving brother, Prince John, was really left, if not a free hand, then certainly a, a fairly expansive hand in England for a number of years. And obviously the, there were those who felt that Prince John was, was the up and coming man. And there were others who felt that loyalty to King Richard was extremely important. Now, in that mix... Nicola and her husband, then Gerard Canville, joined Prince John's rebellion against King Richard in 1191. This was relatively early on because he only became king in 1189, I think. And, and the end of the reign was something like 1199, wasn't it? Yeah. So why did they join this, this rebel brother? And how did things go for them as a result? Initially, they went well. It was 1191. Richard had left on crusade, but he hadn't actually got there yet. Before he left England, he'd instructed his two, two surviving brothers, um, his legitimate brother, John, and his illegitimate half-brother, Geoffrey, Archbishop of York, to leave England. And they were ordered to leave England, I can't remember if it was for three years or for the duration of the Crusade, but they weren't allowed back, basically. Except, as soon as Richard had left, John's mum, Eleanor of Aquitaine, seems to have got a little involved, and there was some negotiation, and suddenly John was back in England. Richard had left England in the charge of William de Longchamp, and Longchamp was the justicia, and he was quite heavy-handed. He seems to have liked to throw his weight around a bit, and all any disaffected baron basically sided with John. Gerard de Camville, I'd love to say it was all an injustice, and he sided with John because he was badly done to, which seemed so at first, because William Longchamp ordered Canville to give up Lincoln Castle so that he could install his own friend, Robert de Stuteville, I think it was, or William de Stuteville, in Lincoln Castle, which sounds like Longchamp's been a bit of a nasty git. But apparently Longchamp had discovered that Gerald de Camville had been harbouring outlaws within Lincoln Castle. But there's basically this bunch of outlaws who <laughs> would waylay traders on their way to Stamford Market and relieve them of their goods. And apparently Gerard de Camville was protecting them, probably for a share of their profits. But Longchamp found out about this and ordered Gerard to relinquish the castle. To be fair, the castle isn't Gerard's, it's Nicholas. So Gerard decided that his best bet was to side with John. John was at Nottingham at the time, so he went over to John, swore fealty to John, leaving Nicola in charge of Lincoln, thinking she'd be fine, you know, I'm at Nottingham, so Longchamp's not going to do anything. Longchamp decides to march up to Lincoln and take it. Seeing as Gerard wouldn't relinquish it, he was going to take it. And he spent six weeks outside the city walls, 40 days and 40 nights, trying to take Lincoln Castle from Nicola. Apparently Nicola defended it so manfully that he literally had to give up and go home. To be fair, John had taken Nottingham and Tickle at the time. So if Longchamp did take Lincoln, it wasn't going to get him anywhere because John was on the up. So he basically had to give up. But it was Nicola who defended Lincoln Castle in 1191 for six weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, she, she did that a number of times, didn't she? she she's a formidable woman. Yeah, she made a habit of depend, defending her castle. <laughs> she didn't need a man, that's for sure. But then when Richard came home in 1194, they were called to account. Gerard was taken to court over this um, outlaw thing and lost the case. And they relinquished Lincoln Castle and um, several of Gerard's lands were confiscated. And they had to pay a fine in order to recover their lands. But they didn't get the castle back until John came to the throne in 1199. And suddenly they were home again. <laughs> it's kind of the reverse of what I was just suggesting earlier, how, how nationalism events affected the local situation this is really the other way around isn't it mm -hmm. this is the locals saying right how can we manage to hang on to what we've got well the best thing to do is to side with with the other party prince john in this case yeah. so it's 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 a two-way street isn't it really 
Yeah, and most of those who didn't side with King John didn't want to make an enemy of him still because mm. they knew that at the moment, in 1191, the king wasn't married yet or was just about to get married. Yeah. He was in Sicily when this was happening. So he hadn't got married yet, but his bride was on the way. Yeah. So John was the heir. Yes, there was a Prince Arthur, but he was very much a child yeah. still. Yeah. You know, he was only about five or six at the yeah. time. So John was a grown man. He was the one on the ground. If anything happened to Richard while he was on crusade, and it wasn't exactly a non-treacherous <laughs> undertaking he was doing. No. There was every chance that he wasn't coming back. Considering how Richard behaved when he was fighting, yeah. highly likely I would think he wouldn't come back. They had to treat John with kid gloves, and I'm pretty sure John knew this. Yeah, um, yeah. They were hedging their bets. They wanted to control John, to you know, to bring him around sort of thing, but they didn't yeah. want to upset him. They had to do it in a nice way. <laughs> <laughs> So when he besieged Tickle Castle, it was like, well, we'd better let him have it just in case. Yeah, it's, it's awkward, <laughs> isn't it? They're, they're, they're all in a bit of mm. between a rock and a hard place most of the time, I think. They are. And I think people, when you look at medieval history, people don't realise how much barons at the time had to look after their own interests. Because the kings weren't going to do it for them. Mm. So they had to side with the one who would give them the best advantage, which is why you see them changing sides or brothers, one on each side, so that they could protect their property. It didn't matter who won and who lost, because the brother on the winning side could protect the brother on the losing side. But I mean, that that's politically, that's, that's always the case, isn't it? I mean, for example, nowadays, somebody might support one party or the other because that party mm. seems to be best placed to advance their particular set of beliefs or cause or or their institution so i mean it, it that, that's how it is isn't it in politics really yeah. whether it be the middle ages or any other period the, the vested interests have to work with whichever power is going to is going to help them most if we roll forward a bit to 1215 so we, we sort of skip most of john's reign because we've talked about john before in, in in other podcasts and so on i'm sure we'll probably talk about him again <laughs> but by that sort of magical date of 1215 when magna carta is is issued by by that time which is obviously close to the end of john's reign but but he has so much opposition from his barons and yet nicola de la Haye remains steadfastly loyal to him now i find this very surprising mm. what's your take on why she remained loyal to john it was one of the reasons I wrote the book, actually. My main premise for writing the book was to work out why Nicola de la Haye supported John when nobody else did. Um, well, nobody other than William Marshall. There's, you know, yeah. there, there are very few leading barons on John's side by the end of 1215. Why did Nicola support him when nobody else did? And knowing what he'd done, because the one thing I have difficulty with is that she still supported him after he hunted Matilda de Breos and her family to destruction, basically. He left her and her eldest son in a prison cell and starved them to death. And I have a, a difficult time reconciling Nicola's support for John with that kind of man. But if you look at it on a personal level, and as we were saying, what was in the best interests of that particular baron? Nicola's family had always supported the Counts of Mortain, mm. even since the Norman Conquest. Her ancestors were in the entourage of the Counts of Mortain, and John was named Count of Mortain at the end of his father's reign. So there's already, mm. even before Richard's reign, there's this association with John as Count of Mortain. The De La Haye lands were in his county in France. But basically, they supported John as Count of Mortain in 1191, and he supported them at that time. You know, he took Gerard de Camville in and agreed with him that Longchamp was the bad guy, and they did win for a little while. Longchamp was replaced. But then they lost the castle. When John came to the throne in 1199, one of the first things he did was put Nicola and Gerard back in Lincoln Castle and made Gerard Sheriff of Lincolnshire. Mm. So he supported them 
and they yeah. reciprocated. It was mutual. He he needed them, but they needed him as well. And then when Gerard de Canville died in 1215, John was well within his rights to install a new constable in Lincoln Castle. But he didn't. He left Nicola in charge. And there's even this great scene from sometime in 1216 where John comes to the castle and Nicola is stood outside the east gate with the keys to the castle, ready to hand them over to John and resign, claiming she was of too great an age and too feeble as a woman to carry on in her duties. And John gives the keys back to her and says, Nicola, I would you, that you hold the castle as you have done before, basically telling her, you're staying in charge. And yes, he didn't have many barons on his side, but she was a woman, and this was a public display of John's trust in Nicola to hold mm. what was one of the most strategic royal castles in the country, and one of the few that was still in John's hands. There was yeah. Lincoln, Dover and Windsor of the royal castles that were still in John's hands. He was putting a great deal of trust in her, but she had already paid him so much beforehand, he knew he could trust mm. her. Yeah. And so you've got this display of trust both from John and Nicola and John telling his barons, Nicola's in charge here. Nobody's taking the castle from her. And Nicola saying, you know, I'm too old. No, mm. you're not. <laughs> I seem to recall in the book you, you refer to the possibility that that whole key exchange might have been staged. What's your view about that? Do you think it was or? I think it was. I don't think Nicola had any intention of relinquishing Lincoln Castle. Mm. I think it was a way for John to demonstrate his trust in Nicola yeah. and to his barons. I don't think he had many options in replacing Nicola, to be fair, but there were a few. Yeah. But this was his chance to say, Nicola's in charge. I trust Nicola, not just to his barons, but to yeah. the garrison as well. Yeah. It's a fairly unique uh, episode, though, isn't it, really? It is. It wasn't recorded until nearly a hundred years later. It was um, first written down in the hundred rolls of Edward I, but it was still in living memory. Mm. So the words might be wrong, but the actual event is fairly accurate. But yeah, I think it was a chance for John yeah. to show his trust in Nicola. Yeah. And given what Nicola was like when they did try to take the castle off her, I don't think she ever had an intention of relinquishing the castle. No, no, probably not. It is an it's an odd one in a way, particularly for the twenty first century sort of morality to say, well, she knew that John had done all these terrible things, but it was in her interest to continue to support him. I guess also, I mean, William Marshall, nobody questions his his morality of, of the time, at least. And he remained loyal to John when many others, Ooh. as we've said, weren't. You could put it in the same category that she She'd given her word, she'd given her support to John, and that was it. She wasn't going to break that because he was king and she would go with, with that particular commitment. You could say that except in 1191, when she sided with John against Longchamp, she was basically going against the king she'd given her word to in 1189. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas William Marshall had stayed loyal to whoever was king. He'd yeah. given Richard first his word and then he gave John his word. So there's a little bit there, but then... They were backed into a corner in 1191, I suppose, and Richard wasn't there. So they weren't really rebelling against Richard. They were rebelling against the justicia. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you could still say that. <laughs> but, I mean, whatever the case, it's not a question with, with all these baronial families. We've now referred to the whole situation several times. It's not a case of being selfish as such. It's a matter of family. It's a matter of the fortunes of your family being protected to the best of your ability. And survival. Yeah, it's a survival. of the family name surviving through the generations, yeah. of keeping everything you have got, all your manners, to pass on to your son. Yeah. So, and that's all, yeah. that's, that was their main concern, to make sure that the inheritance remained intact. Very much so. And, and again, that's, we tend to think in modern times more, not so much of a, of the legacy, although, of course, that, that is often referred to, but we tend to think more of in the moment of somebody being very, very rich or very, very powerful during their lifetime. Mm. But the medieval view was a lot longer than that. And it was more the question of, 
securing their family's fortune into the next generation and beyond. And I think you have to see things through that lens in order to understand a bit why they did sometimes what they did. I mean, there were plenty of examples in this particular period of barons changing sides when they saw (laughs) things weren't going their way. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And even even John's brother, John's half-brother, William Longspay, the Earl of Salisbury, he turned sides. He sided with the French. Yeah. And his cousin, William de Warren, they were looking to where they could best preserve their own land. Yeah. And what their best interests were for their family. People, again, through through modern eyes, may look at it as they were fickle, but it wasn't. It wasn't about that, really. I mean, yes, there were some some people who might have been, but generally you change sides because you felt that the future of your family was at stake. So you better make the right decision. And even William Marshall, who is celebrated for his honour and chivalry and all the rest, he was not averse when carrying out his duties for the crown of ensuring that his own family's destiny was 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 protected as well. So he, even him... Interesting to see that William Marshall's son was on the side of the rebels. Yes, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, there is a suggestion that that was done just in case. Just in case. (laughs) He'd come back in time for the Battle of Lincoln on the 20th of May, 1217. He was actually under his father's command then. So he only had a short flirtation with the rebels. But yeah, he was on the side of the rebels when the French came for a little while. As was Nicholas' son. Let's get into the Battle of Lincoln or the, the whole struggle. John died, basically, doing everyone a favour in a way. But England was in civil war. As you said already, the French in the person of Prince Louis had come to England and they were being pretty successful, really. Yeah. But at the epicentre of this whole struggle in the end was Lincoln with Nicola Hay at the heart of it. So how important was her part in the events that unfolded in 1217 in Lincoln? Well, in 2017, when it was the anniversary of the battle, there were all these discussions that said that the battle of Lincoln in 1217 wasn't that significant. And it wasn't because the English royalists won. If they'd lost, it would have been considerably more significant because (laughs) at the time, the French were at a point where it was make or break. If they'd won Lincoln, then they might have got more reinforcements sooner to actually push through to England. As it was, they lost Lincoln. Reinforcements were on their way in August. But because the Royalists had won Lincoln, they then managed to launch a fleet from Sandwich in um, August 1217 and intercept the reinforcements whilst they were still at sea. So it was, as far as Marshall was concerned, it was a make or break moment. He'd actually decided that they were going to have this one big battle that would put the French on the run. Whereas before they'd have small skirmishes or French take one castle, the The, Royalists take another. Yeah, the odd castle here or there, yeah. But he actually wanted one pitch battle. And what he did was he marched north. He mustered his men at Newark and he marched them past Lincoln to the north so that they were coming, basically not climbing the hill to attack. You know, Lincoln, there's a hill on the south. Very steep hill. (laughs) It's called Steep Hill. (laughs) And it's quite accurately named. It's not a slight incline. So he marched further north so that he could attack from the north, which was less hilly. And his idea originally was a pitched battle outside the castle walls. But the French came out to look at the marshal's forces and had countered wrong. They thought that it was a lot bigger army than it actually was because they'd included the hangers-on and the camp followers Mm -hmm. in their count. So they decided the best thing they could do was retreat behind the city wall and let Marshall tire himself on the city walls. At the same time, Nicola's deputy, Geoffrey de Serland, came out to meet Marshall and somehow they managed to find a gate that was blocked that they could unblock. Marshall's crossbowmen, led by Falk de Breote, were led into the castle through a postern gate and the Bishop of Winchester, Peter de Roche, who apparently was a fighting bishop, 
we're not sure about this one. One of the more experienced historians on the Battle of Lincoln, Dr. Gregg, says that he thinks this bit was made up, that Peter de Roche went into the castle and was let out into the city through a postern gate to do some reconnaissance. So he might not have done that. This might have been him just trying to up his contribution. Just, just for the benefit of anybody who doesn't know Lincoln, there's the town and the castle is kind of adjacent to the town. Is that right? So they're separate. They're sort of joined entities. Yeah, the castle is in the northwest of the town. Yeah. And at the time, the city of Lincoln had sided with the barons and the French. So it was occupied by the bad guys, as far as Nicholas concerned. Yeah. And the castle is occupied by Nicola and the good guys. Bad guys can only basically attack the south of the castle, which is a steep escarpment, so there's no chance there. So they mainly concentrated their forces on the east gate and the east side, which is the bit between the castle and the cathedral. It's amazing when you go there because, yes, there are houses built up now, but when you look at the distance between the cathedral and the castle and the space between, which is where the main fighting took place, is still there. Hmm. So you can still get a sense of how the battle unfolded. Yeah. And the first time I did a talk in Lincoln, I did it at a little bookshop called Linden Books, which is on the Vale, just outside the castle. And I'm talking about William Marshall breaking through the gate and racing down the city streets into toward the castle, probably straight past that bookshop that I was in at the time. <laughs> He didn't stop to buy anything. Either to get to the battle and uh, he forgot to put his helmet on and had to be reminded. <laughs> now, I've always seen this as him being keen to get into battle. <laughs> but Dan Jones suggested, and I really wish he hadn't because now I can't get it out of my mind, that he was in his 70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was forgetful. No, he's eager to get into battle. It wasn't that he was in his 70s and had forgotten his helmet. He was just keen to rescue Nicola. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so the the royalist troops with Marshall are, are entering the city. Yeah. And they obviously aim to break the siege of the castle, but also to defeat the French and uh, rebel forces in the town. Yeah. So how does that, briefly, how does that go? Briefly, six hours of fighting, a lot of bloodshed. The leader of the French forces was killed in front of Lincoln Cathedral. There weren't many casualties on the Royalist side. The French and the rebels tried to get away and they ran downhill trying to get through one of the gates, which was actually blocked by a cow. So they decided they'd kill the cow so that they could get out of the gate. But then that made it even a bigger blockage because the cow wasn't moving anywhere once it was dead. Yeah, yeah. The Comte de Perche was in the in command of the French and he was actually a cousin of William Marshall and he was killed in the fighting. They weren't sure he was dead until they tried to take his helmet off and saw that a sword or a lance had pierced his eye and killed him. I mean, so we're talking about sort of street fighting, basically. Yeah, it was. There was a big melee in front of the cathedral and then it just spread out into the streets. And because the city had sided with the rebels, there was a lot of looting. Yeah. And and were a lot of uh, civilians, were there a lot of civilian casualties, do you think? Ordinarily, you'd say no. But unfortunately, the women and their children tried to get away because they knew what an invading army does, mm. um, which basically was not very nice to women in those days. So they tried to get away by taking to the river, the river with them in small boats. Unfortunately, they didn't know how to control the boats and a lot of them drowned. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, though, I mean, I hadn't realised, I mean, I've we, we've talked about Nicola de la Haye before and, and, and so I had a, a fair idea of her involvement, but I hadn't quite realised how pivotal the Battle of Lincoln itself was in, in that mm. in that little short period after John's reign ended, and uh, the young Henry the Third was something like nine years old, and this civil war was was going on. Yeah. I hadn't realised how pivotal the Battle of Lincoln was. It was, and yeah, Nicola had been besieged. I at first thought that it was something like a six-week siege again, but actually she'd been under some kind of siege since John died. Before John's death, he paid off the rebels to leave the castle alone. But once John died, they invested the castle again. So it was from October to May that she was basically under siege. Yeah. And Marshall actually said it would be dishonourable not to help so brave a lady. So... 
they were well aware of how much she was mm. doing to hold on to Lincoln and to keep the royalist cause alive. If she hadn't held on to Lincoln, if she'd relinquished it, they'd have had this massive base in the centre of England from where they could attack anywhere. Yeah, and they already had a fair bit of control in the south, I think, didn't they? Yeah. So, I mean, again, as you said to start with, it, it's not so much that they won, but that, that they didn't lose. Yeah. Um, that would have affected the outcome of the Civil War, I would have thought, certainly. Well, it would have made it a lot longer. It wouldn't have ended in 1217 for starters, and Louis could have ended up winning. You know, some of the rebels had started trickling back to Henry III's side because they weren't blaming the son for the sins of his father. But at the same time, if the French were winning, they would have gone back yeah. because they needed to protect their own interests. Yeah, yeah. So after this very important battle and her very important part in it, the first thing that happens is that Nicola de la Haye is stripped of the office of Sheriff of Lincolnshire, which John had given her, yeah. and that also then lost her castle as well, almost immediately after Lincoln. So what was her reaction to that? She was not happy. She was not happy. William Longspain, who was, like I say, John's illegitimate half-brother and Earl of Salisbury, was Henry III's uncle. And after the battle, I think he must have put some pressure on Marshall and Henry III and said, look, I want Lincoln. His son was married to Nicola's granddaughter. By this point, her son had died. So Nicola's granddaughter was her sole heir, which meant that once Nicola died, she would get Lincoln Castle. But William Longspay didn't want to wait. Mm. He decided that because he was a bloke yeah. and the king's uncle, he deserved to get hold of Lincoln and the castle <laughs> straight away and look after it and protect it so that basically protecting the inheritance of his son. So he was named Sheriff of Lincolnshire. And as soon as he was named Sheriff of Lincolnshire, he seized the castle. And this was like four days after the battle. Yeah, yeah. Nicola, not one to give in, marches herself down to the royal court and mm. to Henry III and basically reminds the court of the service she has given to the crown and eventually gets her castle back. She doesn't recover the sheriffdom of Lincolnshire, but she does get her castle back. <laughs> and William Longspay is ordered to leave her alone. Yeah. Now, Longspay also wasn't going to give up. And there's several instances in the 1220s where Nicola's writing to the court saying he's at it again, basically. And Bog de Breote's crossbowmen, 100 crossbowmen, are sent to the castle to protect Nicola from Longspay. And he offers... Yeah. Yeah. hostages so that he can get control of the castle. This is why I don't think Nicola was really going to give up the castle in 1216. 1225, William Longspay dies. She hasn't given up the castle. She's not letting him anywhere near it. He dies. Three months later, she resigns the castle. But she wasn't doing it while Longspay was still alive. And I don't think she would have done it when John was still alive. <laughs> How old was she after the Battle of Lincoln when she lost the castle? What sort of age was she then? Well, she was born sometime in the 1150s. So she would have been in her mid-60s at the time of the Battle of Lincoln. For those times, I mean, the fact that she did what she did as a woman and was as independent as she was, obviously was significant. But also, just looking at it from a human point of view, she's in her mid-60s. Does she really want to bother with, with all that hassle? Which makes it even more remarkable that she she bothers to contest it, you know. But uh, clearly, as you say... I think she's very much in the Eleanor yeah. of Akiten Norman lady mode. You know, this is my castle, my yeah. domain, and I'm keeping hold of it. And she, yeah, she was in her 60s, but she yeah. was in her 70s by the time she resigned it. And she died in 1130 in her late 70s. A remarkable woman. I always say that if the 1217 battle had been fought when Nicola was in her 20s and William Marshall in his 30s, we'd probably have a load of movies <laughs> yeah. about it. But because she was in her 60s and Marshall was in his 70s. The pensioners campaign, isn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> we should call it the pensioners war. Yeah, yeah I mean, it is, it is remarkable. I mean, at a personal level, it strikes me just looking at it from the point of view of someone who doesn't know anything about it, really. But uh, it strikes me that she goes to the crown on a number of occasions, a number of different rulers, kings, representatives or whatever. And she wants grievances redressed or she wants something else. She rarely comes away empty handed from those requests. And 
it seems to me that she must have been she must have been a bit scary to some of these prominent men, these lords and churchmen. Here was a a woman, as you say, later on in her sixties, still able to put her case mm -hmm. so strongly that these powerful men found it difficult to argue with her. Yeah, to refuse her. I think so. She she knew who she was. I mean, she was only a minor baron, really. You know, she was Baroness of Brattleby. Um, that was her actual title. And the power she had was in Lincoln Castle. But she did know how to wield it. She had a lot of support in Lincolnshire. And she had a lot of people on her side. And her record spoke for itself. You know, when you go down to the court and you say, I want you to do this. Yeah. But this is what I've done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it must be easier to actually get things done when somebody says, oh, but you're a little woman. And she's like, I am no little woman. <laughs> Defended a castle three times and held on to it. I mean, she went there undefeated. <laughs> yeah. Do we know anything about her her appearance? Do we know if she was tall or short? Or do we know anything about her physical appearance? No, we don't have anything about her physical appearance except for her tomb. Unfortunately, her tomb was done a hundred years later, probably commissioned by her great, 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 can't remember how many greats, his granddaughter, Alice de Lacey, <laughs> who was Countess of Lincoln. She was another remarkable woman in her own right as well. I guess that the fact that she had a tomb made for her a hundred years later or whatever, suggests that she was remembered as a woman of distinction, a woman of importance, yeah. even many, many years later. Many girls in the first half of the 13th century in Lincolnshire, there were a lot of girls named Nicola. <laughs> yes, one can understand that. Yeah. And Nicola, of course, in French, it's Nicole, which is actually the French word for Lincoln. So she was named after the city. <laughs> they were made for each other. They were. Made for they were. At this great remove, it's difficult to, to grasp how important she was and how, how unusual her contribution to the history of the period was. I mean, the first woman to be a sheriff in her own right. Is that, that correct? Yes. Her ability to, to command Lincoln Castle in an age of men. I know they obviously would have been commanders that she yeah. that she trusted that were that were actually perhaps overseeing the fighting and so on. Yeah, she had a deputy. She was originally named Sheriff of Lincolnshire along with Philip Mark, who's the hated Sheriff of Nottingham. But he was soon replaced by Geoffrey de Serland. But when Geoffrey de Serland replaced Philip Mark, he was actually replaced under Nicola, whereas Nicola and Philip were supposed to work together. Serland was Nicola's deputy. And he was a deputy at yeah. the castle as well. So she had mm. men to call on. But from what we can tell, she was she was the last line of defence, so to speak. She was the one in charge. It was her responsibility. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, in terms of the, the number of sieges of Lincoln Castle that she, she withstood, at the end of the day, she was in command. So she decided to give in. It was her personal decision. Nobody else there was going to argue with no. her. And that's why... The fact that she had that authority is so significant, really, mm. and why why it was so unusual. Yeah, and which is why I think that they did have that scene with Nicola trying to give back the keys to John. It was so that John could demonstrate how much he trusted her and that she was in command. Okay, well, one other question. Um, if her father had had a son and not three daughters, <laughs> do you think... We'd be talking about Nicola de la Haye at all, or would she just be a footnote in medieval history like most wives and daughters, even of prominent men? I mean, the thing is, she would have just been married off to lesser men, even. She wouldn't have got to be married to Gerard de Camville. The reason she was married to de Camville was because she had Lincoln Castle. He married the castle as much as he married Nicola. If she didn't have the castle, then she would have probably done like her sisters did. Both her sisters married into Normandy. They married barons in Normandy who were local mm. to the, the La Haye mm. estates. So I think she probably would have ended up not even being in England at the time. Yeah, I mean, there are other examples of... Uh of noble or baronial heiresses where there was no son who had a significant amount of influence more so than they would ever have had if they didn't have that inheritance and i guess she she was one of those yeah 
but she was also, I mean, she when Gerard de Canville died in 1215, instead of, you know, she was in her 60s by that point, she wasn't going to have any more children, but she could have still been a good mm. marriage prize because she had Lincoln Castle. But instead of marrying, she declared herself and soul, basically took over her own lands and interests and took charge of her own life. As women, the only time you actually had total control of your life was as a widow. Mm. So Nicola wasn't going to relinquish that. She, you know, once Gerard died, he's like, right, that's it. I'm in command. <laughs> so so, so legally, she could do that, could she? Yes. So, so couldn't other, could other women do that, other widows? Yeah, you had to pay for it. As with everything, you had to pay for it. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That makes a lot more sense as soon as there's a but fees. It was, and it was involved. only widows. Yes. If you never got married, you couldn't do it. You were still in, under the auspices of your father or brother or something, or the convent you'd joined. But as a widow... I guess that even as a widow, you, and even if you had lands, there was an element of risk about it because you were basically saying, I'm, I don't need a protector. I don't need anybody... Mm. else to look out for my interests which is quite a that yeah. is a bit of a gamble in uncertain medieval times well it is and if she hadn't been such a strong woman it would have you know within two years it wouldn't have paid off because william longchamp comes knocking on the castle door and says i want the castle so you had to be strong enough to defend yourself and your interests yeah. Yeah. Um, she did have a son, but he died sometime between in 1215, 1216 or 1217. No one seems to know. Um, so, yeah, she was on her own, but she had a good good people around her. And if you look at the records from the De La, De La Haye family, they had families who had served them for 200 years, you know, who'd held lands from them since the conquest. So she had a good entourage around her. But still, she had to fight, even as a widow. I mean, the reason I asked the question, basically, is because it occurred to me when I was reading the book that we can all agree she was a remarkable woman. But how many other potentially remarkable women were there in the Middle Ages who never got the opportunity to show those traits? Yeah. Because they were basically just married off and, and their their lives were then centred mm. just around their husband's estates and so on. Whereas she was thrust onto the national stage at one one or two points. Yeah. Well, even those that we don't know, know of, um, Matilda de Breos, who we mentioned earlier, who was starved to death by King John, actually defended um, Payne's Castle in Wales for three weeks when she were attacked was attacked by a Welsh army until um, she was rescued by an English force. And it's often it was often the case that the women were left at home to look after the castle, whilst the men were out fighting in France, in Flanders, yeah. elsewhere in England. And a neighbour or a rebellious army took the opportunity to attack that castle. Now, often the women managed to just hold out long enough to be rescued. I don't think any woman would ever expect to have to hold out as long as Nicola did in that last siege, you know, from October to no, mid-May. No. Um, usually they get somebody, an army in there really quickly, but I think it's a testament to how much she was trusted to be in charge of Lincoln Castle that Marshall didn't march there in October, but waited until May and consolidated other areas before he decided to march on Lincoln. And it's maybe even more remarkable in that women of her sort of class, they were brought up very differently from the men. So they weren't expected to do the things or some of the things that she did. No. Uh, it was assumed that their role would be a very different one in terms of uh, their husband's estates or whatever. They, they weren't... Mm expected to be even a, a sort of figurehead in a soldiering sense in a in the defense of a castle that they were a figurehead but but in her case you know she was actively running things she was making decisions 
And I think that's the big difference. Yes, it is. And But I think her father probably mm. had a hand in that. He knew yeah. that the castle was going to Nicola. And he probably made sure he, he knew that she'd have husbands. But this is the family castle they're looking at and the family land. So he probably made sure that she had a greater grasp of the De La Haye properties and how to, how to preserve the properties in order that the lands passed to her son intact. Yes, you're going to have a husband, but you're the one who knows these lands. They're your family lands. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. I mean, I, I very much enjoyed reading the book and I recommend it to anybody who's interested in, in medieval history. But also, if you're interested in the, the role of, of a, a woman at a critical time in England's history, I mean, this is this is the book that tells you all about it, really. Amazing woman. So um, when can listeners get hold of the book? There's a hardback out. Is it this month? Yeah, the hardback is out on the 30th of May. Right. And um, the paperback will be out same time next year, more or less. Right. And the Kindle comes out on the same day, on the 30th of May. Both are already available for pre-order, uh, Pen and Sword Books and at Amazon. And any good bookshop, <laughs> I can't wait for everybody to read it. Um, I really enjoyed researching Nicola and finding out about all her family. And I was really grateful to some very kind academics giving me some background to Nicola and her family. Um, Professor Power at Swansea University sent me loads of information about Nicola's family in Normandy and Louise Wilkinson, who is the expert on Nicola de la Haye. She's written the foreword for me and already read the book. And but she's been lovely over coffee for years now talking about Nicola de la Haye. And we sat in Lincoln Castle one day having coffee talking about Nicola. <laughs> oh, so that must be heaven for you. I know I know that over the years that, that we've known each other that, that she has been your, your medieval heroine and it must be great to have finally got round to, to writing a book about her. It is. It, it was one of my dreams because I first did a blog post about her when I started my blog and then a chapter in Ladies of Magna Carta. She's now got a whole book to herself. <laughs> well, it's been great talking to you about it and I'm sure it will broaden the reach of Nicola's story to people who've, who've not heard of her. She deserves to be well known. Yeah, she does. She does. Well, thanks ever so much and we will talk again soon. Thank you very much, Derek. I really enjoyed talking about Nicola. Join us next time when we have a very special guest. Bernard Cornwell will be joining us to talk about the Hundred Years' War and the Battle of Agincourt, and I can't wait. <laughs> yes, we're definitely looking forward to that, and I'm sure listeners will be as well. So, in the meantime, I'm Derek Burks. And I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. Thank you very much for listening to A Slice of Medieval.